If you're pregnant and want easy to understand facts about what's happening and why over the next nine months without having to rely on Dr. Google, then Dr. Shelley Rowlands is here to help you through. This is Nine Months Without Google. Everything from understanding genetic testing, how to know if your baby's the right size, to talking you through birth both ways. No more need for out-of-date books. No trawling through the internet. No helpful advice from well-intended friends. Just facts in an easy-to-understand way. During this series, Dr Shelley, with the help of me, Hanya, and guests who are experts in their fields or have experienced pregnancy themselves, will discuss and explain the essential aspects of pregnancy care. Today we're discussing V-Day, vaginal delivery day when all your hard work in pregnancy is realised with the birth of your baby. There are actually two ways to birth a baby, vaginal birth and caesarean birth. This episode is about vaginal birth. The first podcast will give you the facts. In the second podcast, Dr. Shelley has a conversation with a group of women who have had vaginal births. And it's not always what you think. Hey, Dr. Shelley, how are you going? Hey, Anya, how are you? Good. We're going to talk about labour today and to describe the three stages of labour. The first two stages are during the birth, um, before you have the baby, and uh, the third stage is after you have the baby when you deliver the placenta. And I have to say, they make the 12 labours of Hercules look like an afternoon nap. And, of course, they're much more productive. <laughs> yep, stage one um, starts from when the contractions start. Usually it lasts anywhere between a few hours to possibly a few days, but usually eight to ten hours for a first baby. Stage one has two parts to it. It has an initial part that we call the latent phase, and then it leads into a quicker part called the active phase. The latent phase starts when you start contracting and you're feeling pain that's like period pain in association with your whole uterus going hard. Oh, okay. Like those Braxton Hicks contractions. A little bit different to Braxton Hicks contractions. They're sometimes called practice contractions. The Braxton Hicks are more likely to be intermittent and irregular and they don't keep going. In the latent phase, the contractions can start out like that, but they become harder and stronger and much more frequent. So um, what happens in that latent phase? During that time, contractions are making the cervix, which is the neck of the uterus, like the tight end of a balloon, become soft and shortened and eventually start to open, which we call dilate. The latent phase can actually be the longest and hardest part of a labour. How long does the latent phase actually take? There's no set time, but it can take hours or even days. Um, when it's the cervix has got to three to four centimetres dilated, that's usually when we say the latent phase has stopped and you're going into the active phase, and that usually corresponds to having regular contractions every three to four minutes apart, probably lasting about a minute each. Mm. From that point, things start to speed up. So is that how you know you've reached the active phase because the contractions are coming every three to four minutes? You might think that, but to notice for certain, the woman needs to have a vaginal examination to examine the cervix. Unfortunately, she can feel like she's contracting quite well, but the cervix won't have changed very much at all. Oh, oh that's disappointing. Yeah, it can be yeah. very disappointing. But once you get to the active phase, the cervix does start to open up more quickly and usually we say about a centimetre an hour, a bit quicker actually in a second pregnancy. Okay. At this point, the baby's being pushed down the birth canal? 
Yep, that's right. During the first stage of labour, not only does the cervix have to open up as far as it can, as we say, to full dilatation or 10 centimetres, mm. but the baby also needs to come down the birth canal from the uterus and into the vagina. Now, recall, Shelley, you've got something about a visualisation with triangles. And... Yes. Yeah, tell us more about that. Okay. If you imagine a baby's head is like a triangle and then the mother's head is like a triangle, the baby's head triangle needs to line up with the mother's pelvis triangle in order to fit through um, and also be smaller. Helpfully, though, the pelvis, the mother's pelvis actually widens a bit in labour. Mm. The bones move a bit and widen and the baby's head turns um, to line up and its skull bones mould or overlap to help it fit down through the birth canal. So that's why it's actually almost impossible to know exactly if a baby will fit through its mother's pelvis or not until she's in labour. We've all seen tiny women and think, oh, there's no way known that baby's going to fit through. But then all those things happen. The pelvis widens, the baby rotates, the, the bones mould, and you can be really surprised. And actually the reverse is true too. Women have been told they have childbearing hips, so rude. But actually in labour, their baby doesn't fit through for one reason or another. Okay. So we've climbed that first stage hill. Mm -hmm. what, what happens next? Then you get to the second stage. So that happens from when the cervix is fully opened and it finishes with the birth of the baby. Again, it's not possible to know if the woman's in the second stage of labour unless they have a vaginal examination to check that the cervix is completely opened. There can be suggestions that she's in the full, um, she's in the second stage and fully dilated, like maybe feeling an urge to push, but full dilatation really needs to be confirmed before she starts to push. And then the, the pushing starts straight away. No, not always. If the cervix is fully opened, it doesn't necessarily start because maybe the woman doesn't feel like pushing yet. Maybe the head's a bit high. Maybe she's got an epidural. Um, so we don't get her to push necessarily straight away. Okay. Dr Shelley, can you describe the pushing? Yep. Pushing is really like having a big poo. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, it really is. <laughs> That's the direction to push. Think of that next time you're on the toilet. But don't practice because you don't want to lose your pelvic floor. And so that feeling like having a poo, how long does that last, that pushing? For a first labour, we'd say most women push for up to two hours. Shorter than that if it's not their first vaginal birth. It can be a bit longer with an epidural. Like I said, the woman may not be ready to push. Um, she may not feel like pushing. There's no set time limit. Um, but the pushing should result in movement of the head along the birth canal, even if it's minuscule. Can you sort of explain that pushing bit a bit more? Yeah, so to push effectively, the woman should hold her breath and push long and hard into where the rectum is. A lot of women push into their chest or their tummy or they make a lot of grunting noise, but that's really all a waste of energy. Generally, we're looking for three long sustained push for each contraction. Oh, that's interesting that you describe it that way because that's not what we see on the on TV or in the movies. No, TV and movies have not been very helpful. It always looks like the woman should puff or blow, mm. but um, that's puffing part actually doesn't start until their head's ballooning out the perineum. That's called crowning and just about to be born. That's when we get the puffing um, with each contraction, and that helps control the baby's head and reduces tearing of the perineum. And this is the bit where we all start to squirm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Most women will actually either tear or have a cut, which we call an episiotomy for their first baby. Actually, it's hard to avoid. 
I'd never routinely do a cut, but I would do one if their perineum was likely to tear badly, particularly in women who have a short perineum. That's where the distance from the bottom of the vagina to the anus is very short. In that case, I would do a cut so it doesn't tear down to the anus. Oh, okay. So can you sort of practice to get things going um, ready in the area? So there are no real things to practice pushing out the baby, but there are a few things around to help loosen up the vaginal skin. There have been um, contraptions made that you can kind of put in and pump up to stretch out the skin and the vagina. Um, they're, they're a little bit expensive. Um, I think there is some evidence to show they reduce tears, but we don't know really if uh, they're you know safe if you're doing it on a regular basis. What I think is probably a better thing to do is um, is to just massage the um, bottom of the vaginal skin from about 34, 35 weeks on in pregnancy just with some vaginal oil and that will help stretch it up a, a bit. Actually, I did see a woman once in emergency department and she'd managed to get a, a small grapefruit oh. into her vagina uh-huh. um, and she thought that that might help her kind of stretch up the skin and help push the baby out, but it, it didn't go well. Oh. That, what happened? Um, well, she couldn't push it out and she had to have us help her get it out and... Um, she went home a bit embarrassed. So rather than the grapefruit or the contraction, um, I think it's probably just as well to use a bit of olive oil and stretch up the skin around the vagina to get some pregnancy. <laughs> Sounds a lot less um, uh, complicated. Yes. <laughs> so the head's out. The head's out. Often the babies don't cry and we check for the cord around the neck, which is common mm. and not dangerous and then we deliver the rest of the baby onto the mother's chest so that part's usually quite quick over mm. a contraction and that's the point at which the cord's clamped and support person might like to cut the cord and then stage two is complete mm, lovely and um you know you pull out the baby give it a bit of a slap not to make it cry. <laughs> no 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 oh. the babies usually cry by now just from feeling the cold air from the outside but not always it takes a few minutes for them to realise that they're born, actually, and for their they have this inside circulation that needs to change over to an outside circulation. So they gradually change from being kind of blue all over when they're first born to becoming pink centrally, and then their arms and legs and feet and hands become pink Ooh. as last to change colour. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Oh, and then so next, then we're entering into stage three. Stage three. Yeah. So stage three is when you've birthed the baby and the placenta is to be delivered. Um, we've usually given an injection of oxytocin, which is a hormone, into the woman's thigh during the birth after the head's delivered, which usually they don't notice. That drug is to make the uterus contract down. Some people think that this is controversial. It's actually probably one of the few changes to pregnancy care that saved women's lives in, in um, childbirth. After the baby's born, the uterus is like a big, empty, floppy balloon, and it bleeds from that big raw surface area and so a woman can bleed a lot of blood really quickly um, to reduce the bleeding we need to reduce the uterus in size so the surface area is smaller and the contractions also block the vessels going into the muscle of the uterus and that way she doesn't lose as much blood most women will do that naturally themselves but we don't know who will and who won't so we give everybody the hormones so we don't not behind the eight ball afterwards the oxytocin doesn't go to the baby it only goes to the mother so i'm never really sure what the downside of having it is okay so have the oxytocin yeah, yeah and yeah. also if 
if a woman loses a lot of blood in labour and delivery, she's much more likely to have problems with breastfeeding, she'll be slower to recover, and unfortunately, occasionally, there is still the old woman who dies of hemorrhage in childbirth. Yes, so have the oxytocin. So then the placenta's out, maybe about 30 minutes after the baby, and this is the point at which if the woman needs stitches, they can be done. Right. Mm, the stitches yeah <laughs> the mother will be looking at her beautiful new baby you know we give plenty of anesthetic or she might have had an epidural already but if she hasn't we give plenty of anesthetic to make sure that she's comfortable during right. that stage by the way listeners we'll be covering coping with pain and pain relief in labor more fully in podcast um okay so that's it the three stages and you have a baby yes congratulations but <laughs> the hard work is about to start so just going back a bit, what about birth plans? The good thing about a birth plan is it actually makes you think in detail about the birth process. So a bit like starting a new job, um, if you sort of know what's happening, you're, you're, you're less scared. Exactly. Yeah. The potential bad thing, of course, is that for some of us who like to have our lives completely organised, it can be a bit like a travel schedule that you want to stick to at all costs. Say you and a friend, you want to go to Italy by taking the scenic train route but then the train's cancelled at the last minute and you can't take the scenic train route. You have to take the bus on the motorway. And it would have been nice to take the scenic train route. Mm-hmm. All of your friends did and they thoroughly recommend it. But actually the most important thing is to get to Italy, both of you, and safely. By all means, make a plan. Talk it over with the person looking mm-hmm. after you and your support people. But you also have to be prepared to go off script for the greater good. And let's face it, you still get to Italy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Um, A common question, I suppose, is how do women know when to come to hospital when they're in labour? A lot of first mothers ask that. Mm. Second-time mothers usually know they're unlikely to miss it, actually. That's probably not true. There are a few, but really they are the minority who have silent labours, but it's really, really uncommon. Everybody starts their labour slightly differently. Some women will start with irregular pains over a period of time that gradually become more regular. Some women will start out with full-out pain regularly, quickly and some women will just break their waters the most important thing is that if if you're at all concerned then you should contact the delivery suite and speak to them then okay it will usually be after 38 weeks it's a small percentage of women who deliver prior to that time but most women deliver going to labor after 38 weeks okay does it matter if it's your first or not your first baby Mm -mm. no um that's another thing often people think that first babies come a bit later but it it doesn't seem to be the case and also doesn't relate to things like the size of the baby. We're not exactly sure why labour starts when it does. It's still a bit of a mystery. So no real way to predict it? No. If I could predict it, I'd be outside the hospital with a scarf on my head bringing in the gold. <laughs> no, um, not by ultrasound, not by the you know, the size of the baby. Although having said that, if the baby is lying on its back in in the uterus looking up the stars we call that the posterior position at the end of pregnancy women will often have a kind of off-on irregular start to their labor and can often go overdue and then you're in that pesky latent phase yeah that's right Mm. it can be a kind of long latent phase associated with that posterior position so the time to call the hospital and think about coming in is when the waters have broken usually a big flood of fluid or there are regular pains every few minutes for a first baby, mm. probably further apart for a second baby, or you need pain relief, or if you're worried, you should always ring and ask. Um, I imagine that not every woman who starts labour and tries for a vaginal birth will actually 
have one in the end, will they? You know, it's, no. so I suppose it's important to understand that. Yeah. Can you explain that a bit to us? Yeah. So just going back a bit, explaining the labour process. During the labour, the woman has a midwife with her for the entire time and that midwife will be listening to the baby's heartbeat, monitoring the contract- contractions, how, how often they are, how strong they are. We're usually looking for about four regularly spaced contractions over a 10-minute period for someone to be in good labour. But remember that woman needs to be examined periodically to check for the cervix. And who does that? Well, either the midwife or the doctor will do the examinations. And they'll usually do it every few hours to check the progress. If the heart rate's normal and the cervix is opening up at each examination, then things just keep going until the cervix has reached that full dilatation and they've reached the second stage. However, if during the first stage... And that's before being fully dilated. That's right, before being fully dilated. If there's a problem with the heart rate of the baby or the woman's cervix is not opening up despite having really good contractions or the baby's not moving down despite having really good contractions, it might be that a vaginal birth is not possible and if these things happen before getting to full dilatation, caesarean section Mm. is the way she would need to have the baby. So that's why a woman would need a caesarean. Yeah, that mm. happens to about one in four women who go into labour. The main reasons that happens are the baby's not fitting through the pelvis or the contractions are not dilating up the cervix, not opening up the cervix enough for the cervix to be fully open or the baby is not tolerating the labour. If any of those things happen and she's not fully open, the only way to have a baby would be by caesarean oh, section. Okay. Well, what about, hang on, before the caesar, uh, what about the forceps, the vacuum? When do you use those? can only use those to assist vaginal birth if the woman's in the second stage, so she needs to be fully dilated. About one in three women will get to the second stage, but they won't be able to push their baby out. They'll generally need help with the forceps or the vacuum, maybe less chance of that if it's not your first baby it's usually because the baby's head's not moving down despite the woman's best effort okay and how do you decide that it varies a bit if the baby's healthy and its heart rate's okay it's usually okay to keep pushing if the mother wants to we usually say up to about two hours for a first pregnancy a bit shorter for other pregnancies the two hour cutoff is is used because we know that there's probably more damage to the pelvic floor more chance of tearing and trauma to the mother's um, birth canal with with longer pushing and um, it's also possibly associated with the baby becoming more tired over that period of time if you think about it as like moving a heavy table across a room if you've been pushing that table for a while and it's moving even a bit then it's still okay to keep pushing on your own but if you've been pushing that table for an hour and it hasn't budged even a little bit then pushing for a bit more is not really going to make any difference and in fact it's less likely to be helpful because you'll be tired okay so then we would go and get some help that's right if there was concern about the baby's heart rate you might need help with the forceps or the vacuum to help speed up the delivery you know a common question with the the forceps and the vacuum is does that misshapen the baby's head or does it mark yeah. the baby's head? Yeah. yeah. You can occasionally get a, a mark from a forceps on a baby's head. If they're used correctly, they're very safe. Mm. Um, the same with the vacuum. The vacuum works by suction on the baby's head, sucking his skin into the suction part of it. Uh, and that gives a little top knot on the baby's head that we call a chignon. And that will go down over the next 24 hours or so. So any marks from the vontus or the vacuum will generally change over the next 24 hours. Most of the 
abnormal shape of the baby's head is actually from the baby being pushed down the birth canal with the moulding of the oh, okay. baby's skull bones. Okay, well that makes sense. Mm. Um, you know what, we haven't even talked about the partner in no, all of this. No, we haven't. <laughs> so from your experience, is there the ideal job description, the list of do's or must-do's or don't-do's? No. <laughs> different women need different things, I think, from their support person. Some support people need to be given more direction than others and some support people are more squeamish. The midwife's a good person to help figure out at the time how your support person is best going to help. Um, being present is a good start. Mm. Most women will have someone with them who knows them really well. Um, but being in labour, that person's going to see an entirely different version of themselves. It, as things go on, it'll be clearer whether the woman is a hands-on person yeah. or whether she needs a hands-off support person. If they've done classes and made a birth plan, then they will likely have thought through the sort of support that they want and if it turns out to be like they anticipated that's great but on the other hand it may not be so my advice to any support person is that they need to be involved but flexible okay and i suppose you know what's said in the birth room stays in the bathroom that's exactly yeah. right thank you dr shelley for such valuable insights into the v-day Next time, we'll hear some real and interesting stories from women who've experienced vaginal births. Please remember, all of the information you hear is of a general nature, and you should always discuss your specific concerns with your healthcare provider.